here with Jen Pan, who is, unfortunately, formerly the host of The Jacobin Show. You can find her writing in Jacobin Magazine, The New Republic, Dissent, The Nation, among others. She is the author of a very forthcoming book, which we will discuss uh, towards the end. I'm very interested to hear about that. But Jen, if you could maybe introduce yourself for people who are not familiar with your work or maybe The Jacobin Show in general. Who are you? What do you do? And welcome to the podcast. Thanks. It's great to be on, number one. Uh, number two, as you mentioned, I was the host of The Jacobin Show for about two years. The Jacobin Show, as I think the name suggests, is the sort of YouTube wing of Jacobin Magazine. As you had also mentioned, I'm also a writer. I have sort of been in and around left media for probably close to a decade at this point. I've also worked in traditional media as a staff writer at The New Republic. Uh, but again, I think if, if people, for whatever reason, have come across me, it's probably through YouTube. And I guess I'll say for The Jacobin Show, we, we really started The Jacobin Show in December of 2020. So obviously a month after you know Biden was elected, a few months after the unfortunate end of the Bernie Sanders 2020 campaign, and uh, a few months after the big racial reckoning of 2020 and racial justice protests, right? So we started the show because we really felt like the left was in a kind of strange spot where after the defeat of the Bernie Sanders campaign, it wasn't really clear where people were going to go, what we were going to do next. And I think the racial reckoning of 2020 sort of provided one sort of path post-Bernie, but I think all of us who were involved with the Jackman show at the time had reservations about that path, uh, which maybe we can get into later. But I, I would say the main goal of the Jacobin show for the two years that it was running was mostly to give a platform to a tendency that I think is sometimes called the new old left, which is to say a, <laughs> uh, you know, unashamedly class centric uh, left that understands the working class as the agent of social change. Uh, number two, prioritizes economic issues and a strong labor movement. And number three, and maybe most controversially, rejects identitarianism and kind of like vanguardist social justice culture. So that's, that's the pitch for The Jacobin Show, which by the way, ended last week. <laughs> Unfortunately, yeah. yeah. Well, I really, <laughs> I really enjoyed it, and I'll I'll Thank give you. you a brief compliment here. After having surveyed this landscape for a very long time, these internet content creators who are messaging from various sides on the right and left, I had, I think, prefigured that the space was in need of a type of messaging that is exactly what you provided. I've spoken to a few people who I'll try not to name on the podcast. If it does slip out, then I'll, I'll remove their name from the, <laughs> uh, the final published version. But people who have been held up as the case studies for a lot of these issues of YouTube radicalization, of radicalization through online content messaging and so on, uh, those people enjoy your program. They were listening to your program. And I think you reached some of the people who really? needed it most. Yes, yes, absolutely. Okay, we'll talk um, about that later then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It seems like there's a pretty tight editorial vision. There's a desire to reach certain audiences. Um, maybe you could tell us about some of the overall themes that go into The Jackman Show and who are the various audiences that you're trying to reach? 
This was something that we were kind of constantly thinking about. I think just by nature of being associated with Jacobin, the bulk of the audience was people who already identify as leftists or socialists, people who are readers of the magazine or, you know, people who are already consuming some kind of leftist online content, right? There was also the hope that we would be able to reach what I think of as the average Bernie Sanders voter, which is somebody who doesn't necessarily identify already as a leftist or a socialist, but you know, uh, voted for Bernie Sanders or supported Bernie Sanders because they liked what he had to say, they liked his demeanor, and they liked aspects of his platform. Now, it's debatable whether we actually ended up getting to the second group, but to go back to the first group, which is people who already identify with leftists, to pick up on something that you mentioned, I think that part of our goal was always to identify and maybe help correct some of the bad behavior or the moralizing rhetoric that we see springing up on the left and maybe offer an alternative, I guess. Yeah, it seems that throughout the program, there's a few different brackets or different targeted messaging to different groups. And I think generally my experience in left organizations and broadly in these discussions, especially in the art world over the past few years, is that the immediate knee-jerk reflex is to organize some type of name and shame campaign. And people, uh, kind of the second thought is then okay, well, where do we work and what kind of power do we have in that context? And, and it mm-hmm. seems to me that those things should kind of be reversed because there are some real opportunities, especially at this moment. Right. Okay, but if I can break down these different groups, I broke it into a few different sections. Targeted counter-messaging to politicizing teens. This mm-hmm. is uh, the, the YouTube demographic, which is really in need of counter-messaging. There's also an aspect of it where I feel like you were setting the narrative for journalists and that you could give like a meta frame to how to discuss a certain problem. And then there's also like just broadly, there's a whole variety of people who are not explicitly political junkies and are kind of just like they need the stuff from politics, like they need to go to the dentist or they need to see the doctor and they've been putting it off. And those people are really receptive to this message of, uh, yeah, we need to get a national health service and increase wages, uh, address the economy, things like that. So of those various groups, uh, let's tackle YouTube first. How was the reception among like the Vosh teens of like YouTube political nerds, for lack of a better term? Right. Um, Did you see traction in that department? You know, because... I saw the YouTube analytics. I can unfortunately tell you that no teens watched. Uh, It was mostly the millennial demographic, which I think is both you and me, people between, I guess, what is it now, like 25 and 40, right? You know, it's, I sort of purposely avoided looking at the comments for what I think are pretty obvious reasons. That's a wise choice, yeah. Right, yeah. So I don't have, I don't think I have necessarily the, broadest picture of what our audience was, aside from, you know, kind of looking at the dry analytic numbers and hearing from people here and there occasionally. So that's to say, I don't think that we got to the teens. In terms of the sort of media apparatus that that you were talking about, I'm not sure, again, that we were necessarily able to influence people in the media or, or you know, other influencers. But But what I will say is, I do think that because we were able to offer a narrative or a framework that I hope is different from a lot of what you hear in, you know, more mainstream uh, liberal left media spheres or even what other left YouTubers are saying, 
I think maybe the value of the Jacobin show was that people, people who, you know, sort of broadly agree with what we've been calling the new old left tendency and who weren't necessarily hearing that perspective from other left YouTubers felt like, oh, this, this is what I believe. And the Jacobin show is talking about the things that I find interesting or the things that I think are important and, and, and are also sort of rejecting the moralizing rhetoric or rejecting the kind of ultra left, sort of less productive or less strategic strains of leftism. Yeah, the, um, there's a generational distinction in the mediums in that millennials listen to podcasts because they commute on the train or they go to the gym. And then the Zoomers tend to listen to live streams. Sometimes YouTube can strike a balance between that. It's also debatable about what types of messaging is impactful to younger politicizing demographics. And right. um, if your type of very well articulated analysis was what they needed at that moment? Or did they need to just basically have an adult babysitter who gives them an entertaining live stream? And then when they're, you know, 18 to 24, rather than the 14, 15, 16, then they can move into some other type of political coalition and get a, right. a, a more well-founded, firmer right. grasp of the political issue. So yeah. uh, those things are important. We've talked about these different pipelines and funnels into political activity so much over the last few years. So, um, yeah. but I'm not sure if you've been watching my stream and then you haven't seen the Jacobin show. I, I don't know. You must have been asleep the whole time. But a few people are going to be curious, what is social democracy? What does that, what does that term actually mean? Because we hear a few things from a few different sides that social democracy is, let's say it's saving capitalism, right? Mm -hmm. There's these mm -hmm. crises that occur within capitalism and eventually that instability is going to lead to its own collapse mm -hmm. or there's going to be a revolution and uh, this is the preferable way to overthrow this system. So for people who don't yet know what this term is, what is social democracy and why is that preferable to any of these other things? There is a lot of discussion about what social democracy is and what it isn't and how it's different from democratic socialism among the sort of nerdier quarters of the left. But I think for our purposes, we can say that social democracy is a society in which the state actively intervenes to blunt or soften capitalism or, you know, kind of shave off the worst, most punishing aspects of capitalism. What that usually entails is decommodification of necessities and essential resources like healthcare, housing, energy. Social democracy also entails a strong welfare state that guarantees cradle to grave social services to every citizen. And uh, social democracy, I think, also entails a very strong sort of mass trade union movement or a strong, a strong labor movement or labor party that kind of safeguards and pushes for, you know, the rights of workers and all of the other rights that I mentioned within the larger framework of capitalism. So to the second part of your question, um, you're absolutely right. Uh, social democracy is capitalism, or I should say, it does, it does accommodate or prolong capitalism technically. Just as a real life example, the Nordic countries, which I think people are probably familiar with, are kind of like actually existing examples of social democracy. And Bernie Sanders' platform was, I think, his vision of what social democracy could look like in the US. So back to the capitalism question. Um, I, it is true that social democracy in many ways accommodates capitalism. And you can see that with the Nordic countries, right? Like they, you know, I'll, I'll take their economy and their 
political and social system over the U.S. is any day, but any day. just any day. Exactly. Yes. But uh, that said, you know, they have also had to fight very hard against rollbacks of the welfare state. Capitalists and neoliberal politicians are continually trying to, like I said, roll back the gains of the labor movement implement austerity, uh, attack, you know, trade unions. And the reason why they're able to do that is because obviously under capitalism, capitalists will continue to have the upper hand because they have all the money and the power, right? So even if you have a social democracy where you're sort of checking some of the worst impulses or the worst effects of capitalism, the capitalists are still going to have the upper hand. So that's that's all true. Um, but what I will say in defense of social democracy is I think ideally social democracy would be kind of an intermediate step to what we might call democratic socialism. And then as it relates to politics today, like I'm going to go ahead and quote Vivek Chibber, who is a sociologist who's appeared on The Jackman Show many times. He has a great line where he says, you know, in the short term, we're all social Democrats. And what he means by that is even if you are interested in the possibilities beyond social democracy, even if you are, let's say, interested in full luxury automated communism or you're interested in a revolution and you want to bypass social democracy completely, Number one, I just don't think that a revolution is around the corner for us in the U.S., unfortunately. Um, I, you know, I, I don't think that that's on the horizon. Uh, and, and even if you do think that it is coming, a revolution is not going to be, is not going to work out in the benefit of working people unless we're organized, right? Unless we have some kind of collective organization and some kind of, hopefully some kind of institutions to kind of rally and um, centralize working class power. We don't have any of that. So even if there were a revolution tomorrow, uh, it wouldn't be the working class that benefits. So what do you do to kind of prepare for a revolution, right? Or like, what do you do to kind of get ready for moving beyond social democracy? It's the same shit that you do if you're just interested in social democracy. You build the labor movement. You try to build up working class institutions. And that's what Vivek means when he says, in the short term, we're all social democrats. So that is a bit of a long-winded way of saying, you know, do I think that if we're talking in in theoretical abstract terms, do I personally think that we should stop at social democracy? No, but to put it another way, in the US, we can't even get Medicare for all. Like our, our politicians won't even keep the expanded child tax credit, which gives, you know, working parents like a small cash benefit every month. If we're if if we can't even do that, I just feel like talking about what comes beyond social democracy is kind of a dead letter. That was a phenomenal answer. That oh, was great. thank you. <laughs> you went through all of my follow-ups. No, that's that's perfect. And I feel like that is the case that I've tried to make to a few of our younger listeners who are, mm -hmm. you know, very interested in romantic notions of revolution and so on and so forth. Well, let me lead into this next question then, because sure. one of the things that's a major index for me about the current dysfunction of the left is that proposals that should be, I think, broadly supported from our side end up appearing on the other side where you get mm -hmm. to see conservatives emerging who they literally use the term social democracy, you know, yeah. um, and that is, that's quite concerning because historically that's a little bit incongruent to say the least. Yeah. So it would seem that this is an indication that like something is going wrong in the conversations on the left, that these are not points that we can really agree on. And some people would think that it is better to not achieve those things. I, I find mm -hmm. that really troubling. And so the case that I've 
curiously found myself in is that I'm articulating points to a lot of in some cases, very right-leaning young men who have become politicized through social media. I've conducted these lengthy, lengthy interviews. In many cases, I'm the last person who has left-wing politics and is willing to talk to them. You know, this is like thankless work, and I don't know why I put myself through it after <laughs> a certain time. Uh, I mean, it's, it is it is research, and it is useful in some ways of like, what kind of messaging can reach that demographic. Mm-hmm. But it's been curious to see that Broadly, the things that you mentioned, National Health Service, uh, education, social services that you can depend on from when you're born until you die, uh, a lot of people with right-leaning politics can get on board with that. And then it's been difficult for people who really spend a lot of time in left-wing circles to the extent that their political commitment on the left is a type of cultural identity with which they are not willing to compromise. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's that's very difficult. Um, YouTube has been a kind of right-wing cesspool for many, many years. Yes. It seems like these video titles, some of the topics you're talking about are doing this concentrated messaging to kids who maybe got politicized through looking at uh, a bunch of dumb, (laughs) bad arguments from conservatives in the last few years. They're looking at Charlie Kirk, these types of characters, and they really need somebody to kind of sit with them and work through the ideas and and tell them how they're wrong, like what exactly Mm -hmm. it is that they're getting wrong. Uh, So I wonder if you could talk a bit about counter messaging on this front and why that is important in the context of YouTube, but in the context of today's political discourse in general. Yeah, that's really interesting. I I agree with you that it does seem like there are people who might identify as being right wing or being conservative who actually are like totally down with some of the fundamental tenets of social democracy. And I agree that it's a real shame that the left seems to have been unable to reach those people or kind of capitalize on that, like that weird crossover group. Right. And Bernie seemed able to, though. Exactly. Right. right? Yeah. yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, and and to that, I'll say that something that we have talked about on the Jacobin show that I think is really interesting is that at least in the U.S. Well, actually, I think this is the case for Europe as well, but definitely in the U.S., what we've seen over the past you know, 40 years is that the Republican and the Democratic Party have started to look much more like each other in terms of economics, but they've been growing more polarized on the cultural issues. Right. So what happens when the parties kind of fracture that way is that you get left with a segment of the electorate that feels like they're not being represented in terms of their economic policy. So, you know, if you have kind of left economic sensibilities, but you're more ambivalent on the cultural stuff, there's really no party that's there for you, right? If you're if you're basically left with a group of people, like I said, in the electorate who just don't have any political representation. Uh, And so I think that part of what we really wanted to do on The Jacobin Show is not necessarily like deliberately court right-wingers. You know, after all, this, this is a left publication. This is a left YouTube channel. But I think... I think we wanted to show how important it is to de-emphasize the culture war stuff and to foreground the economic issues, a left economic platform, which I think is actually super popular in the US, or at least much more popular than it's given credit for. And the cultural stuff, on the other hand, like the far, I, I, I don't even know if I would call it like far left cultural stuff, but you know, what we might shorthand as like social justice culture, uh, wokeness, or uh, I don't know, identitarianism, which are, are sort of 
huge frameworks on the left, um, nobody likes that stuff. I, I don't know how else to put it. And so I think, you know, with with the counter messaging, um, yeah, I mean, it's interesting that you call it counter messaging, right? Because I don't even know, I don't even know that I would think of it as as counter messaging. Um, I think again, it's more it's more of just a messaging of a tendency that I think was just not represented at all. Yeah, yeah, that's actually that's or not better, represented enough. Yeah, it's a better term. Um, and actually. I think, you know, I, I do have to say, I don't think that the Jacobin show was the only show doing that. I think that Crystal and Sagar's show Breaking Points is probably even a better example. Sure. I, like, I, like, I don't know if you watch that show, Josh, but I'm convinced that they de-radicalize like uh, actual yes. <laughs> like neo-Nazis. Um, I have yeah, yeah. no empirical evidence for that. I just like have a feeling. I don't know what you think. <laughs> yeah, uh, I would. I would very much agree. I uh, I watch them all the time. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think they're doing really extraordinary work. Yeah. Okay. Um, a, a few things here. Yeah. I found when this this is difficult. Uh, I'm yeah. Back myself <laughs> into a corner with this one, but um, when we talk about deliberately courting right wingers. There are so many cultural affiliations or just in some cases being broadly apolitical, which is I think that's how I would describe most people as being apolitical. But from a left perspective, there are so many things that they weren't major issues in the last few years, but now that is territory that's ceded to the right. So Mm -hmm. the idea, I guess, counter messaging is a problematic term because it comes from these consultants and nonprofits and and so on about, um, yeah, I think- the shows that are doing that type of work are really invaluable at the moment. Uh, Breaking Points is definitely doing that. Um, what is the new one that they have? Uh, Counterpoints as well with Ryan Grimm is is quite good. Right, yeah. 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 And I, I think these things are, are really, really useful. Yeah. To go back to what you were saying about the left kind of seeding certain concepts or certain discussions to the right. Like, what exactly do you have in mind there? Because I I have a few examples, but I don't know if we're... So like, I'll say, for example, like, like, I think that one big area that we've tackled on the Jacobin show that I think the left is kind of floundering in is talking about crime, right? So like the, the right gets to take up crime as like their issue and gets to call for law and order. And the left's response is to... A, say that's racist, which it often is. It often is, you know, a racist dog whistle talking about crime, uh, but that's the left's kind of go-to response. Number two, uh, this is even worse. Like I think that lots of times people on the left will sort of say something like, well, well, crime is really an abstract, an abstract concept, right? Like what is crime? And I, I get like the, both of those responses, I get it. But the truth of the matter is, you know, when you look at the policy preferences of working people, working class people, as opposed to, you know, upper middle class, professional managerial class people, it's working class people who are concerned about crime, obviously, because they're the ones who have to deal with it, right? And, you know, when you when you kind of compare, like, working class people's lists of priorities with middle class people's lists of priorities, what you find is that working people, like when they're polled, they'll say that they care about things like crime, jobs, the economy, healthcare, you know, bread and butter issues. Um, and then middle-class people are more likely to say that they care about things like climate change or racial justice. And I'm not saying that the middle-class concerns are not important, but again, I think that this is just an example of the way in which 
the less kind of theoretical position can sometimes end up being more alienating to the very demographic that it's ostensibly trying to court. Yes. Yeah. I think uh, crime is a great example of this. And I remember at the beginnings, I heard a lot of voices on the left trying to argue the case that this was a right-wing conspiracy or misinformation, but it did seem rather verifiable and a a difficult (laughs) Mm -hmm. point to contend. So people eventually abandoned that. Um, In terms of topics that are seeded unnecessarily to the right, I think health is a big one and Mm -hmm. nutrition. And you see these things like I understand these people are not representative of enormous majorities, but there is a level of just how a mass communication network like the internet works is that people celebrate things like Soylent, which is going to be, you know, the gruel as we all live in the pods in 2040 and and whatever. Um, Often the response is to say like, yeah, this is happening and it's a good thing. And Mm, that has been really counterproductive. I think the big one for me recently is um, I've reached out to Lee Phillips that we're going to do a podcast, I think, at the end of November, but talking about nuclear power and some of the messaging that has come from the left is that this is continuing a legacy of colonialism and the extraction from nature. And it, it does really feel like our society is not going to run purely on renewables. Like some of this is actually necessary. Uh, (laughs) Greta Thunberg had some interesting points on this that represented Mm -hmm. a turn in her thinking. And I think the more you immerse yourself in these issues, if nuclear power is a necessity or a a certain part of the energy mix, um, that's really dangerous when we start to see that as being like, you know, the brutal exploitation of a planet that we have a parasitic relationship to and that mankind is analogized to being like a virus on the planet. Like that, that's really detrimental rhetoric for convincing people who are broadly apolitical and their beliefs being in support of nuclear is now a right-wing adjacent idea. Mm -hmm. That's what I'm Mm -hmm. trying to say. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I'm going to steer us into a topic here for a second. I've been talking a lot about elite capture in the context Mm. of cultural institutions Very often when I say those things to people who are young or from a creative background and have left-leaning ideas, you get this response that institutions in general are a enemy of the working class, that uh, what we're supposed to do on the left is to overthrow institutional structures, that these are oppressive. But if you would broadly define what is elite capture, what, what does that mean to people? That's interesting. I would be curious to hear, since you've been talking a lot about it, uh, how you define elite capture, because Mm. I I actually, I don't really, I don't really use the term that much myself, to be honest. Um, My general understanding is that it, it's a term that kind of comes from like development theory and refers to like, I'm like butchering this or like paraphrasing very dumbly, but like refers to like government corruption or something. Right. I I, I think that, so actually, I don't know, maybe I'll hand it back to you first regarding your definition? Uh, Sure, yeah. Um, I think, well, maybe I'll give you my version of it. And then there's a side of this that maybe correlates from cultural institutions in the US and also in Europe. And then I think you can map that somewhat onto other institutions. But uh, in general, I would say that there's a sharp divergence in the 1980s where the cost of living begins to creep up and up as uh, mm-hmm. wages and productivity are divergent. And this, um, the argument I've been trying to make is uh, better elites. Um, and <laughs> what what I think is evidenced through this, the content, the media, the messaging that we've had in the last few years is that if you go back to 1967, you can get 
Michael Harrington and William F. Buckley having an uninterrupted two-hour conversation on public television. And mm-hmm. today we get 30-second uh, clips, 15-second clips on social media that the quality of information in the public discourse is just much, much lower. Uh, mm-hmm. The elite rhetoric is um, much less relatable, understandable. It's often in terms that people literally do not know what these words mean. And I'm, I'm seeing a correlation here between the rising cost of living and who can afford to move into elite positions in society. Because right. if it's a prerequisite to assume a quarter of a million dollars debt and then to do two years of an unpaid internship and then move into a job that pays you, in some cases, literally $35,000 a year, there is no one who can survive on that type of wage. I mean, that that is impossible unless you come from intergenerational wealth. So right. often you see this in adjunct professors that the, the wages are insufficient and so they're subsidized by people who come from money to begin with. And I think broadly, if you know, being a journalist, maybe this is a more direct case for the political impact of this, but if you can't get paid more than $150 for an article, then the only people who can afford to do it are super, super wealthy. And right. so what you see, I'm not making the case that, you know, uh, media institution like the New York Times didn't always have biases and things like this. But what I'm saying is that there has been, I think, a decisive drift to platforming the opinions of people who come from really, really privileged backgrounds now. And that correlates with neoliberalism from the 1980s to now, more or less. Right. Yeah, definitely. I would agree with that. And you're right. It is very, very pronounced in journalism, particularly. Obviously, part of neoliberalism has meant the destruction of local media and kind of these, you know, journalism is a really interesting example because in the post-war period, like journalism was almost a blue collar job, right? Like you didn't necessarily have to have a college degree. Mm. You could be a beat reporter at a local newspaper and journalism was more unionized back then. And now uh, there, there was like a crazy study that came out a few years ago that looked at all of the top publications, the New York Times, Washington Post, uh, New Republic, I think was in there and looked at how many people had Ivy League degrees. And, you know, I, I mean, obviously everybody in journalism now has a college degree, but the top institutions, so to speak, are basically overrun with Ivy League grads. So that's not just that's not just a middle class perspective. That's like almost a ruling class perspective at that point. Right. So so. So that's just to say that you're definitely right. And I'm sure, like, I would be curious to hear how that's transpired in the art world. Um, but I assume it's very much the same. Yeah, well, I'm, uh, the art world is a difficult case because it's um, always been luxury status, but right. uh, it is now like orders of magnitude more luxury just in the 10 plus years that I've been in it. So it, it really right. has dramatically transformed. I think um, in this case, you know, legacy media institutions is a pretty direct case for I- elite capture. There's also universities as well, where the elimination yeah. of tenure, the adjunctification of higher education has led to coincidentally removing left-wing perspectives from higher <laughs> right. education in many cases. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Or, you know, it's interesting, uh, Bhaskar Sankara, who is the publisher of Jacobin, He has a really great line about the media and the academy where he says something like, in the media and in the academy, and I bet this is true for the art world as well, it's easier to be a communist than a social democrat. And I think what he means by that is... um, (laughs) I was just going to ask you about that. Oh, That's, okay. Yeah, yeah. Continue, continue. That's good. <laughs> about about. The, have you heard that before? Or I think sometimes people um, say like it. it's easy. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Respect. Please, uh, yeah. please finish the. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um. Um. Which is just to say that you know 
when we talk about or when we're thinking about like what kinds of ideas are what kinds of ideas are popular or are able to get through in these elite spheres um it's it's not that it's not that it's necessarily right-wing ideas or conservative ideas right but rather it's a variation of it's a certain kind of left-wing idea which is just to put it bluntly, like I think in the media and in the academy and in the art world, it's much, much easier to talk about things like white supremacy and anti-blackness and settler colonialism. Like those are things that we hear all the time in those worlds. It's much easier to talk about that than to talk about like getting healthcare. And part of it is sort of obvious, I think, in that these spheres are all in a way attention economies, right? So it's 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 just hmm. more exciting to talk about, say, abolishing the family than it is to talk about, like I said, getting healthcare. And, you know, I think what ends up happening is even if people have good intentions, I think that they're sort of professionally, socially, and many times financially rewarded for taking kind of these maximalist rhetorical positions like I said, you know, in, invoking yes. things like white supremacy. So yeah, I, no, I'm no, curious to is, hear your thoughts. This this is absolutely it. Yeah, because I think it it's curious if a left-wing perspective has been removed from higher education, broadly speaking, with the elimination of tenure. Uh, this was explicitly the left strategy for many, many years. Right. And why, if that is the case, does uh, higher education, uh, Hollywood and media sound with this, you know, fanatical rhetoric, yeah. adopting this activist language. Right. So, right. And if uh, you asked any conservative, they would be like, oh my God, like the universities, like the academy, Hollywood, it's all left wing, you know? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, the case is then I think incumbent upon us to make the distinction, which is, which mm -hmm. is sometimes difficult. Yeah. I think of this as strategic overshooting. <laughs> I think it's actually, I think it's a bit more insidious than the attention economy because Mm. you know, I'm going to get fucking crucified for what I mean, I'm already I've been crucified go, go many times it. over. <laughs> but uh, okay, to do social democracy is going to require a redistribution of the wealth of the billionaires that fund these fucking museums and nonprofits like that right, is the course. straight that is the the God's honest truth. And to uh -huh. say these like, you know, incredible statements like tearing down the museum as a colonial fortress, which is never going to happen. And I uh -huh. mean, these really quite wild claims in some cases, it seems to be that that is like really convenient to just bury the underlying material reality that it's extremely more concentrated than any point in American history. And then right. like the thing that's going to actually help those people that you are rhetorically making this gesture towards is that they just need the stuff. They need to go mm -hmm. to the doctor and they need to get mm -hmm. an education and they need like, you know, the, the bare bones benefits of social democracy rather than these elaborate rhetorical gestures. And that right. opinion has had a very interesting effect on my art career and many other people I know who are in this sector. Uh, huh. and, and I've seen a lot of people change their rhetoric in the past few years also. And I think it, it is important to emphasize what the rewards are for being in the system and kind of towing the line rhetorically. I, I think that is kind of the wedge. Mm -hmm. I've had many conversations with people who are in various positions of the art world or the cultural sphere. And um, they're kind of uh, aware of this, you know, the idea mm -hmm. that you could have like a broadly appealing political package that the policy level spoke to many, many people, that 
needs to be sidelined. And I think it has to do with the funding structure that it is um, definitely essential to, to maintain a, a level of extreme inequality. And mm-hmm. uh, unfortunately, the reality is that some of the more radical rhetoric is like, allowing for that to happen by kind of filling this attention economy space that we're going to talk about this for the 20 minute segment we have, and we're not going to have time for this. And that is the, that is the difficult uh, line to walk being on the left right now and being in the cultural sector. Right. Yeah. 100%. Um, That's, that's well said. And I'll add to that, that the political scientist, Cedric Johnson, who again has been on the Jacobin show, ha- uh, he, he came up with the term militant liberalism, which I always find super useful. And what he means by that is, again, pairing this kind of like maximalist, uh, radical ultra left rhetoric with either no policy program or like the most tepid policy program, right? So the example right. that I think I've given before is, you know, to go back to what we were talking about, like, you're, you'll hear people in like cultural spaces or the academy say things like, we must overturn like settler colonialism and interrogate anti-blackness. And when you really dig down into what they really want, it turns out that they're really asking for like getting more black artists into a museum or something, which like may very well be a laudable goal. But again, it, there is kind of a disjunct between, like I keep saying, this maximalist rhetoric and then what it is that they're actually asking for. Um, And then finally, this goes back to something that I think you just alluded to, which is it does it stop people from taking political action? I'm not sure. But, you know, I will say that when you think about a phrase like abolish the family or whatever, it's like not really clear what even if you want to do that, it's not clear what practical actions like you would take today to do that. And so I think a lot of times this kind of like extremist or like ultra left talk really just goes nowhere. Yeah, I'll give you, I'm going to make this anonymous because okay. I don't want to <laughs> jeopardize anybody's careers, but there was an opening at a museum <laughs> and there was a art writer, a critic who crossed a picket line during the strike of the museum staff mm. to go in and write a review because there wasn't enough representation for the artists that were in the show. And so that is, in some cases, hey, a direct don't do that. conflict. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, don't do that. That is the, right. And I mean, one is, um, you know, there are more Latino people who are out on the sidewalk striking than there are hung on the walls. Like that's, mm-hmm. I mean, this is a real conflict of interest. Right, right. Um, it's no surprise to anyone that these things are incredible fault lines for political discourse at the moment. But uh, you may remember a few months back, maybe this is a year ago, there was quite a controversy about Joe Rogan spreading some questionable, very questionable <laughs> in some cases, information about COVID. Mm-hmm. And uh, Bosker Sankara is one of the people who was uh, expressing support for him as well. I find it very curious. I contributed to that article in The Guardian. And why is it, why is an artist, like I'm a professional career artist, I taught in art schools, I show in galleries and museums. Why am I being called to comment on this thing? You know, and I think that is actually not indicative of like, oh, Josh is a, a great, I mean, I did write a nice like two line thing for the, for the article, but it's, it's really because like, who else are you going to call? These are mm. such third rail issues that um, because I'm not attached to any other institution, I can speak freely about I mean, to the right. severe detriment of my art career. But uh, <laughs> there's like very few people, if you just abstractly like, who writes for this magazine or who works for that media organization who is willing Mm -hmm. to lend 
200 words to this topic, it's actually very few people, you know, right. and that, that is a real problem for building the broad coalition that is supposed to win the popular demands that I would like to see in my personal life, but also yeah. for, for most other people in the country. Let me use so that for, as a So segue. for this article, it was like you and Bhaskar. <laughs> it was like, I think there's four to five people, but okay, it was, yeah. it was just curious that there were so few people who could positively Oh, interesting. Yeah, support yeah. the need yeah, yeah. for this type of conversation, even if it was wrong to to right. give him the the freedom to make those arguments. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I want okay. So let me use this as a segue, though, because sure. I think there's a lot of people who listen to this show in particular. Speaking of uh, tapping into different audiences and different people who need to hear different things, um, mm -hmm. let's say, for example, a lot of our listeners are creative freelancers. Maybe they're mm -hmm. doing graphic design or they work in a, a job where you know, they themselves do not have too much capacity to organize. And, you know, when we say things like the rail workers are going to line up their contracts and do sectoral bargaining, it's like, mm -hmm. oh, well, that sounds great. But, you know, beyond like a moralizing uh, support for what that is, like, what are the practical benefits of people who work in creative professions living in a society that has like an organized labor movement? How does that affect them in a beneficial sense as individuals? Yeah, so we, you know, we, we know at this point, thanks to history and lots of research and studies that whenever union density is high and the labor movement is strong, that kind of ends up raising the floor for everybody. So we can look at a number of different countries where this has shown to be the case. Um, but even here in the US, in the post-war period when the labor movement was at, ex at its strength, that raised the standard of living for everybody. And how that kind of works on a practical level is, you know, obviously when unions are strong and they can bargain for higher wages and better benefits for their workers, that will end up affecting an entire industry, right? So let's say that, you know, you work at a factory, you work at like a car making factory that isn't unionized. But if the one next door is unionized, and they're getting certain wages and benefits, then your employer is going to have to raise your wages too to stay competitive. Um, so that's kind of the, the very practical level that when the labor movement is strong, I think it just ends up being good for all workers. And you had, you had mentioned the split between worker productivity and wages that's been happening over the last 40 years. That is a direct result. I mean, that, that, like, if you look at the charts, which I'm sure you have, that correlates perfectly with the decline of the labor movement, right? Like, it's basically like a perfectly like inverted picture. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's like one to one. <laughs> it's like really remarkable. Um, so, so, you know, is, is a real workers contract or like, is a Teamsters shop in Ohio getting a new contract going to affect you as a freelancer in New York? Probably not. But I would say, again, on a broader societal level, a strong labor movement just by nature raises the floor for everybody. As we had sort of alluded to before, I think a strong labor movement also puts all working people, regardless of your exact employment status, in a better position to bargain for kind of larger social goods like healthcare. You know, I, I don't see how nationalized healthcare isn't going to benefit every single freelancer in the country. It puts the working class in a better position to, to demand things like childcare and other social services that I think will only, again, benefit people who aren't like formally employed in, you know, a nine to five job or whatever. And finally, I think that a strong labor movement has the power to influence legislative bodies like the NLRB, the National Labor Relations Board, which can make rulings 
that pertain directly to freelancers, contract workers, and gig workers. So it, it is a little bit indirect, but you know, I would say it, it goes back to whether you see working people in the working class as kind of the agent of social change in the society, which obviously I do. And I think there's a strong case to be made for that. And the locus of working class power just is organized labor. Yeah, I, I have to agree. And I think the way that I make the case to art students who come to me with political questions about, you know, what how does this how does this actually affect me? Like what is my my stake in this struggle? My idea of how you would conduct an art practice is that for most people, it is kind of a part-time thing. There are very few people who are actually full-time artists who maintain yeah. a studio and sell you know, discrete art objects and uh, so on. And so for most people, you are unavoidably dipping into the labor market for like half of your week. You know, you're doing some type of freelance work and you're probably trying to keep a low overhead so you can have a lot of your time to work on your creative projects. Maybe you get fortunate in, you know, one instance or another where there's like a small grant or a bit of funding from something, but you are kind of always like between these two worlds and like the tighter the labor market is, the better organization uh, you have in all other sectors. It's like, it just lift the floor of wages right. and you will benefit right. from that. So my argument has always been that the the more well-organized labor is, the more time that you're going to be able to spend doing your other stuff through this, as you said, indirect source of funding, which mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, taken from Mark Fisher and a few different uh, arguments where living in the UK prior to the ruthless gutting of the welfare state, the cost of living was low enough that people could kind of just go on the dole and do whatever it right. was that they wanted. <laughs> right, exactly. And yeah. in many cases, that's like more preferable than professionalizing your art practice or pursuing grant opportunities that are like an right. incredible time investment and often don't come through in the end. So right. yeah, yeah, that's I a think good point. Like a lot of European countries obviously heavily subsidize the arts and, you know, have programs and uh, official state funding for artists. Um, and, and the US did too during the New Deal, you know, so I think I think we'll get some of that too. But as you said before, it's like, well, we got to get Medicare for all. And then after that, right, we can yeah. talk about, you know, subsidies for new media <laughs> uh, art or something. Right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah fair my enough. friends yeah. who live in the Nordics, you know, they in some cases literally get paid by their government to write poetry. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. the people who don't get paid by their government, they also barely work. Like it's just right, it's yeah. so much. It's like so, <laughs> so they much. They write preferable. the poetry anyway. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And so you know they do a lot more freelance because they don't have the grant, but like the type of freelance they do is much less grinding than the type of stuff you do in the states. And so right. Exactly. Yeah. It just becomes yeah. uh, much easier to like spend your time as you would choose to spend it. If mm -hmm. that is creative freedom for artists, like that's great. For other people, it might be having a garden or a hobby or whatever it is that they want to do or doing nothing at all. Nothing at all. Sure. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That indirect yeah. funding gives you the liberty, the freedom to do that. So Right. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I do want to ask you about your book and what projects you're getting up to next. I think you mentioned on the stream that you were actually going into some freelance projects, which <laughs> I would be curious to hear about. <laughs> uh, but uh, can you tell me first about the book? Because we've had a few listeners who have uh, asked about this in advance. Really? Yeah, yeah, you're, it's coming out in 2024. Is that correct? Yes, it's quite yes, a while away. Okay. Yeah, book yeah, timelines yeah, it, are it, it, crazy. They are. They are. Um, I have to submit the manuscript next year, but then it'll be like another year before the book is out. So yeah, it'll be out from Verso in 2024, spring of 2024. I am writing a book that addresses a lot of what we have talked about today. Actually, the the main focus of the book is going to be why corporations and economic elites embraced anti-racism 
basically after the racial reckoning of 2020. I mean, I think that the sort of corporate embrace of anti-racism had been sort of bubbling up a little bit before, but that was kind of like the high watermark. Um, So I'm going to look at what that says about the changing nature of capitalism, obviously, particularly at a time of extreme and worsening economic inequality. And I will be basically making the argument that this is a way for elites to preserve or extend the neoliberal order and re-legitimize capitalism right when, you know, public trust in the economic system is rapidly disintegrating. So that's that's the book in a nutshell. Uh, stay tuned. That's the, well, I have to say, I'm really looking forward to the book because I've very much appreciated your YouTube content, your videos, your writing and your commentary over the last, how long has it been now? Uh, two, years. two years. We did the show for yeah, two years. Incredible. Yeah. Which is crazy to think about, but yeah. Wow. Thank you, Josh. I've that, been doing this show for too long. This is fun. <laughs> You've been doing it for two years and I, yeah. God damn. Okay. I gotta, I gotta move on to another project. Jen, <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for joining the podcast. Uh, it's been great to chat with you and uh, more again soon. Thanks, Josh. It was great to be here. Thank you.